Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Dylan Matthews, and today I'm joined by Vox's Jerusalem Demsis for a really interesting episode on genetics, meritocracy, and how to use our knowledge of the human genome to make a more equal world. Our guest today is Catherine Page Harden, who's a professor of clinical psychology at the University of Texas at Austin. Page has recently released a book called The Genetic Lottery, Why DNA Matters for Social Equality. The book discusses what researchers like her have learned in recent decades about how genes can influence human life and behavior, from performance in school, to crime, to wealth, to income. And the book makes a strong case that emphasizing genetics needn't make us resigned and accepting of social inequality. The argument is actually that genetics can be a powerful tool to fight those inequalities. So uh, Paige, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Before we go too far, if you had to summarize the argument your book is making and, and sort of the intervention it's trying to make in this argument, what would you say? What's what's the big takeaway? I would say the big takeaway is that genes matter for people's lives, that we should take that seriously when we're trying to figure out which inequalities are fair or unfair, and seriously when we as scientists and policymakers are trying to design things to improve human lives. I know a lot of this conversation is going to require having kind of defined a few terms for us. So, I mean, we're talking about things like um, how genes influence important life outcomes. Can you just talk about how the research actually works? Like, what do we actually know? How do we measure these genes? And in terms like polygenic index and GWAS, what what do these mean? We can start on the non-genetic side, which is, you know, how do we measure inequality, which is itself its own topic of debate. You know, what type of inequalities we pay attention to both scientifically and politically. I was trained as a developmental and clinical psychologist. So on the outcome side, I'm really just thinking about how do people's lives turn out differently? We can think of that in sort of three general domains. And one is around physical health, physical disease, lifespan. One of those is around psychological health, well-being, psychiatric disease, addiction. And the last domain would be economics, which would be income, wealth, involvement in the labor market. What's interesting to me as a psychologist is all three of those domains are really wound up with each other right now. And they're all three linked to differences in education. So I got into this thinking about how do genetics influence child and adolescent development? How do they do in school? What are their risks for mental health problems as they transition through puberty? And if you do that work, you rapidly learn that those turning points in childhood and adolescence really set the stage for these inequalities that we see play out through the rest of the life course. So one half of the science is just in terms of defining differences between people at different stages in development. How do people differ in the lives that they're living? On the genetic side, there's kind of two classes of methodologies that people use. The first doesn't actually measure anything about your DNA. It just leverages information about different types of relatives. So this would be how do children resemble their adoptive parents versus their biological parents? How are identical twins more similar on certain things than fraternal twins? More recently, because it's so much easier to measure the human genome, researchers are increasingly Initially, they were moving away from those kind of family designs, although as I'm going to preview, they turn out to still be really important for for reasons I'll discuss, to actually measuring how do people differ in their DNA. And they most commonly focus on what are called SNPs, which are these single DNA letter differences between people. So at a particular spot on your genome, you might have a T where I have a C, and that's a variant. It varies between us. 
and there's a kind of a more common version than a less common version. So it's now fairly cheap to have people spit into a tube and measure hundreds of thousands or even millions of these SNPs across the genome. And then the question is, what do we do with that information? So the most common use of that information these days is to assemble samples of people who are all pretty homogenous with regards to the genetic background. So they might all identify as white British. And if we look at their patterns of genetic similarity, they all seem to have genetic ancestors that resided in a pretty circumscribed part of Europe. And then look at within that group of people, how are these SNPs that we've measured correlated with pick your outcome, you know, macular degeneration or obesity or height. And this is the thing that introduces the world into um, not just psychology, but sociology and economics, educational attainment, years of education or income. As you can imagine, and we can talk more about this, interpreting those correlations, what do they mean? Why would we think that, you know, genes are actually causing something is, is scientifically complicated, but just as a technological transformation that's happened in the last 20 years, there are now millions upon millions of people who've been genotyped, and mostly in high-income countries, mostly people who, have, who are of European genetic ancestry. And so researchers are increasingly able to look and see which genetic variants are correlated with things that we measure about people. So just so we have sort of some definitions clear for listeners, so a polygenic index would be the set of SNPs that a given study has has associated with a given outcome, like height or, or educational attainment. And the study that this is coming out of would be a gene-wide association study. Is that right? So it usually proceeds in two parts. A GWAS, a genome-wide association study, is done in a very large sample of people. So my colleagues and I, the paper that we had earlier this year was one and a half million people that were involved in the study where you're correlating these SNPs with whatever your outcome of interest is. So now you have a, a huge list of correlations, right? Like you have a million tiny, tiny, tiny correlations. What do you do with that information? You can go to a new group of people and use that set of correlations to add up information about their genetics into a single number. So you have two copies of every gene, one from your mother, one from your father, we can say, okay, at this particular SNP, you have zero, one, or two copies of the rarer version, the minor version, the minor allele. And I'm going to weight that zero, one, or two by the correlation I've estimated in a genome-wide association study. And then I'm just going to add those up across your whole genome, right? Which is really gross and clunky. It's mechanistically opaque. It is the sort of thing that will drive you know, a plant geneticist kind of absolutely <laughs> nuts, right? Because it's you know, like, what are they doing? We don't know what they're doing. So we end up with this really gross variable that's calculated entirely from your DNA that we don't know how it works. That's correlated with things we care about as social scientists. And that is both alarming uh, to many people, but also a really interesting jumping off point for a lot of, I think, an interesting science applications. So if you look in samples, again, this is all of people of European genetic ancestry, we can get into how that relates to socially constructed race. Most of the time, people who have European genetic ancestry would be racially identified as white in the US. Within those groups of people, this really clunky polygenic score, this adding up all these you know, genetic variants into one number, is a strongly correlated with things like whether or not you graduate from college as family income is. So regardless of the fact that we don't know why it works, works in the sense that it's capturing negligible variants, it is. And, and what I'm doing in this book, a large part is struggling with like, well, what does it mean? How do we make sense of it? How do we move forward with the science? Why should we be curious about that as an observation? One thing you mentioned about this polygenic score or this index is that it is measuring kind of purely genes. But I guess one thing we should emphasize here, and you note this in the book, is that the measure you're using to determine how much genetic variance influence life outcomes is not a purely genetic measure. So yeah. for instance, the yeah. polygenic index for educational attainment, it's figured out by looking at what genetic variants correlate with that life outcome. And then it creates, it adds those all up, like you said. But you know, 
there's the famous example you talk about in your book from Sandy Jenks. You know, if red-haired people were banned from going to college, then genes associated with red hair would correlate heavily with low educational attainment. So I guess in two parts here, like how do you kind of try to tease those things apart? And, you know, are, are you worried about kind of overstating the case here for how much of this is genetics when we know that there's a lot of correlation between the genes you get from your parents and the environment your parents provide? That's such an important point. You know, if some, just because something is measured at the level of the genome doesn't mean that it's capturing processes or mechanisms that we would intuitively understand as biological or genetic. And I love that you brought up that redheaded example. You know, when we look actually at the, the genes associated with education, we don't see a lot of things that would be associated with, you know, the sort of melanin that gives you red hair. But we do see, for instance, genes associated with your diurnal rhythm, with being a morning person versus an evening person, which I think is a maybe even a better thought experiment than the red hair one by, by virtue of the fact that it's actually what we see. We can imagine a world in which schools started later and, you know, we socially constructed school differently and people who were night owls rather than morning uh, what are the larks versus owls, morning larks, uh, did better in school, there's nothing necessary, sort of essentially biological that's being captured in the information. It's these genes are associated with some aspect of my phenotype, in this case being a morning person versus an evening person. And that's being acted on by a social structure that's structured to some extent arbitrarily. And so it's leading to these differences between people. So I certainly don't want to suggest that just because we're measuring DNA, that we're only capturing biological processes. We're definitely capturing the environment and not just the sort of processes that you're talking about where something about my biology, whether that be my, my red hair or my night illness is responded to differently by the social structure, but also there's this problem of gene environment correlation in the sense that people's genetic differences are correlated with their environmental differences. And so there's always this question in a conventional GWAS where you're comparing people who aren't typically considered relatives. Am I picking up on genes that are actually influencing some process that's then influencing my risk for disease or education? Or am I picking up on genes that just happen to be more common in members of a social class or people from a particular geography Am I picking up on some dynastic environmental process that is just correlated with genetics by virtue of human history? And that is a really hard scientific problem that you know, people are moving towards addressing. The book is titled The Genetic Lottery because I, you know, I find that metaphor interesting in a lot of different ways. But one of the ways is thinking about how the randomness inherent in reproduction helps us get at disentangling genes from the environment. So both of my kids are being raised with the kind of suite of geography and culture and history and class that I'm bringing into their lives. But which of my genetic variants they got is random. And it's that the randomness of Mendelian segregation, the randomness of the reshuffling that's happening within families, that is turns out to be one of our most powerful tools for trying to disentangle this incredibly complex gene environment problem. And by disentangle, I don't mean that we'll ever find out that it's genes or the environment. Like in the life of any one individual, it's always both. It's more thinking about this set of genetic variants. If I kept the environment equal, which of course I could never do like in an experiment, but like all things being equal, if everything else had been your life had been the same, but your genome had been different, how would the probability of your life chances be different? And I, that's the thought experiment that I want people to keep coming back to. Just so listeners can get a, get a sense of, of the large band of uncertainty we really have while trying to tease out what you're talking about here. I know in the LA Review of Books, the authors kind of cite a study which uh, indicates that roughly half of the variation the polygenic index for education is finding is through sort of indirect, potentially environmental channels. I know there are other studies that have shown different levels for different sorts of traits. Can you just walk us through how we should think about this uncertainty and how large it really is? Yeah. So I think that's a really, that's a, such a great question. So the, in the LA Review of Books, they're talking about this fantastic study. It's led by a psychologist, Rosa Cheeseman, out of the UK, 
where she's looking at this, you know, so you've done a big genome-wide association study of educational attainment. You have a set of correlations between SNPs and how far people go in school. Again, we're talking about people who are homogenous with regards to genetic ancestry. Now you go to a new group of people and you say, okay, how I've added this information up into a polygenic index. How strongly is it correlated? What Rose's study did, which was really lovely, is she looked at the correlation between the polygenic score and educational attainment in two groups of people. One group of people had been raised by their biological parents. So their genetics is not just telling you about them. It's telling you about the parents who are raising them and providing their their environment. And the other group of people are people who are adoptees. So the genetics are telling you about them, but it's not pulling along. And also you were raised by these people who lived in this neighborhood, right? So that tie, that dependency between what your parents bequeath you environmentally versus genetically is broken a little bit when we're looking at adoptees. So what she found is that the polygenic score was less predictive of a person's own education if they had been raised by adopted parents rather than biological parents, which is suggesting that what, again, that what the polygenic score is, is it's measuring DNA, but it's not just tapping DNA. It's tapping this web of everything that comes that's correlated with DNA. You can do that design in a lot of different ways. The adoption way is one. Another way is um, looking at the genes that are transmitted from a parent versus not. That's another kind of way of looking at it. Another way is looking at how predictive is the polygenic index when you're comparing within siblings versus non-conventional relatives. And generally what you see across all those methods is about half of the predictive power of the polygenic index. Half of that effect size is gone once you're controlling within families. The question then becomes, one, does it make it unimportant, like scientifically or or politically? And I think one way of thinking about that question is again to think about what are the other social science variables that we have in our arsenal, right? So, you know, we can think about um, something like family income, what is the relationship between family income and offspring phenotypes outcomes when we do the same design, when we look at biological families versus adoption families? And we see this kind of like similar drop-off in the correlation. So part of our genetic, part of our, our variables that we're measuring that are ostensibly genetic are picking up environmental stuff. And many of our variables that are ostensibly environmental are also picking up on these biological processes. And that, to me, is why social science is hard and fascinating, right? Like, that's why I'm... Oftentimes when people talk about the ways in which environment gets into our genetic measures, they think of that as a reason to give up on them. Whereas I feel like, like, in some ways, that, like, the biologist trash is the social scientist treasure. Like, that's why I'm interested in them, right? Like, gives us an opportunity to understand, okay, how? Like, how is the environment sneaking into these measures? How can we use the combination of the ostensibly genetic and the ostensibly environmental in combination with one another to understand human development? Yeah, this is a a really interesting point you make early in the book uh, that you have a a great chapter on causation and what it means for a gene to cause something. And I found it really useful because sort of my lay sense of what that meant going into the book is something like uh, Tay-Sachs or Huntington's disease. So those are like a very specific and a single gene is, is flipped, that causes all these devastating physical changes that, that we call Tay-Sachs or Huntington's disease. And when you're talking about these SNPs, these thousands or millions of, of, of gene locations, it's not like that. It's not a single thing that's flipping. And it might be mediated by society. But your argument is that you can still talk about things that are mediated by society and that have all these, these various genetic correlations as being genetically caused in some sense. Walk us through how how that works and and what what it means to say it's genetically caused in that way as opposed to the like Tay-Sachs or Huntington's way. When we first learn about genes in like high school biology, there are these examples of Tay-Sachs, of Huntington's, or of trisomies, or of PKU. These genetic effects that are specific 
there's this kind of one-to-one correspondence between the genome and the outcome and they're uniform, right? So, you know, across time, across place, um, it doesn't matter whether you're born in 15th century France or in North Korea today, like if you have this monogenic disorder, you will develop PKU. And they're explanatory, right? So if we know what the Huntington's disease gene is doing, it's this mutation that's causing differences in the degradation of this Huntington protein. And then you get these long tangled strands that build up in cells. People have a very strong prior that genetic causes are all like that, right? These specific uniform explanatory causes. Leaving genetics aside for a second, if you think about the sorts of causes that we talk about in psychology or sociology or political science or in politics, we are never talking about causes like that, right? Like, is Instagram bad for teenagers, right? Like, that is not, like, the relationship between social media use and depression is not specific, right? There isn't like one phenotype that you get from using Instagram. It's not deterministic. It's not uniform across time and place. It's not explanatory. Like to the extent that it is, like how does Instagram affect like the neurobiological mechanisms of mood? Like we don't know, right? Like most everything we talk about in social science land is none of the above. But we can still think of chancy causes as causes, right? Like they're difference makers even if they're not difference makers that are true as like a law of nature. What's really hard about doing work at the intersection of natural and social sciences is that those two broad disciplines think about causation in different ways. And so we're trying, like oftentimes people are trying to port their sense of causes as as uniform and explanatory and, and singular into social science outcomes or they think that's what I'm claiming if I say that that genes cause social science outcomes. Um, so that I mean, there that's why there's like in a book that I was attempting to write for a general audience an entire chapter on the word cause because I think it's really important when I say that genes cause differences in education. I'm saying again, if everything about your environment were exactly the same and you if you would inherit different genes, your probability of going as far as you did or didn't go in school would have been different, which is a much narrower claim than the reason why people didn't get to college is because they had quote unquote bad genes or something like that. Like those are very, very different statements, the first one and the second one. The first one is almost definitely true. And the second one is definitely false. (laughs) And so far we've been talking about um, sort of within group variation. So, and I know you've you've kind of tagged this a couple of times here, but for our listeners, and I didn't know this going in either, the, the almost all research in this space has been done um, specifically on individuals who would identify as having European descent and likely identify in the current context of the United States and um, Western nations as white. So we don't actually have a lot of information about other groups, and there hasn't been anywhere near the sort of um, investigatory um, work done at all, uh, let alone between groups. But often in these conversations, it's dominated by this kind of conversation of, well, we know X thing is genetically important within group A, and we know that group A and group B look different. Therefore, there is a genetic component to what makes group B different from group A. And it's very intuitive, and it seems like you know, super like, okay, it's that's logical way of thinking about things. Um, and it's been the dominant way of people think about um, genetics and when they talk about differences between different groups in a political context. But you make the case like pretty forcefully in your book that that's not what the existing literature tells us. And that actually having a prior here is more indicative of someone's own political beliefs than anything that's actually inside the science. So can you can you kind of explain that and, and, wh- and why we don't have that prior um, right now? Genetics in terms of studying how do people differ in their DNA sequence, how is that related to their phenotype, has been extraordinarily exclusive. It is focused on a tiny slice of of human genetic diversity, and that is people, I mean, that is people who identify as white British in the UK biobank, European genetic ancestry customers of like 23andMe, and the country of Iceland, right? Like that is like where the vast majority of genetic data is coming from and has been operating on. So, you know, it is a very important 
thing to say and keep saying that the genetic evidence that I'm talking about in the book cannot speak to racial differences because race isn't a genetic construct and because all of the people that have been studied in this molecular way are people with who are of European genetic ancestry. There's an old kind of thought experiment about this, which is, again, like a plant genetics thought experiment, which is the one about, you know, imagine two gardens and one has been given good environmental experiences, right? Like adequate sun and fertilizer and water. And you look to it and you see, well, within this lovely environment, most of the differences I see in how tall my corn plants grew is the genetic differences between them. And then you look over here at this garden that's been experiencing environmental oppression, right? Like it has not gotten sun or water or fertilizer and the corn plants are very short. And you say, well, it must be that they're genetically shorter. Like that would just be an obvious logical fallacy, right? Like you cannot go from the causes of within group differences to say something about between group differences. Um, and in fact, like they could be genetically taller and you just don't, you literally have no information whatsoever. So knowing that, knowing that molecularly, we have only studied one slice of the global population. We know that what we're discovering within that is not informative about the nature of, of racialized group differences. Where does this prior come from? And I, and I think it's pretty obvious that in the United States context, you know, it has been this drumbeat of narratives about racial inferiority and superiority. And people have kind of grafted their like hazy high school knowledge of biology onto that and have come <laughs> up with this, this idea that if you study genetics, even within white people, it's telling us something about racial differences. And even what I did there, which was like to slip into talking about white people, you know, in the U.S., people of European genetic ancestry are overly, overwhelmingly likely to be racially identified as white because of the way we construct whiteness. But that kind of one-to-one -one correspondence like almost immediately goes away when we're talking about any other ethnic or racial group. So race is important for understanding social inequality in America. I'm making the case that the genome is also important for understanding patterns of inequality because of its relationship to education and, and how much we've kind of built on top of education, heaped on top of education in this country. But genetics as it currently stands is not at all informative about racial differences. And I think it, keeping all three of those things in mind at the same time is a tension that's hard for people. I sort of want to push you on this because I think that one comment that you made or, or a conversation you made in the um, the New Yorker profile of you was something that I thought was interesting. So you, you indicate in that, in one conversation, that if you were to get rid of a lot of inequality, whether it's um, racism or classism or sexism, things like that, essentially all within group variation that's left would be genetic. But, you know, we know that there's a lot of environmental variation within groups. For instance, not, not every Black American will grow up with lead paint in the walls of their homes, even if they are statistically more likely to do so. So perhaps I misread your point, but I, know, I, I hope that we can have more clarification on that. No, I think that's a very good point. So I wouldn't, that would be an overly strong claim. I wouldn't say that you know, once you are looking at within group differences, that those are all genetic. I think within group differences are partially genetic and partially, you know, the slings and arrows of outrageous portion and partially developmental noise and partially like the like idiosyncratic factor that's like very difficult to understand in social science. So my point in that was really just to call attention to, while the visible dimensions of race and of class and of gender are obviously an incredibly important part of the story of American inequality. They are not the entire story, right? There is still a truly vast amount of variation that exists beyond what we can most easily see in terms of these kind of visible group memberships. You know, for education, how much variation is within family, right? Like within people who are raised in the same home, and even then, it's like two-thirds of the variation in educational attainment, right? Like, that, to me, is not independent from the other dimensions of inequality that we talk about. But it's not redundant with it either, right? Does that address your question? Like, does that get at what you were... No, yeah, it does, for sure. 
I wanted to, to get back to this point of, of sort of within group versus across group yeah. differences because this it's it's one of the more politically explosive and like one of the the aspects of of this debate that gets sort of taken over by scientific racist human biodiversity kind of folks. So so to date, we've mostly relied on research on on uh, white identified people, white Britons, et cetera, Icelandic people. You mentioned in the book that that's rapidly changing. 23andMe, Ancestry, all these these private DNA stores have vastly more diverse sets of DNA. They might not be perfectly representative, but they're they're more so. On the horizon, are you going to see studies, sort of GWAS studies that find SNPs that, that associate with things like education or intelligence and that associate across many racial groups such that you could then have sort of scientific racists pouring through the data and saying, ah, this is one of the smartness snips and it shows up more with this race than with this race. Uh, so we were right all along. Like how, how is that sort of new flood of data going to, to affect that conversation and, and be used uh, both by sort of responsible scientists and by these, these gadflies on the side? Yes, it's definitely changing. The U.S. has invested in large-scale genotyping efforts that are specifically oriented around not just kind of one slice of the global genetic diversity pie. NIH's All of Us study, Mammalian Veterans Program study. So we're going to see increasing availability of large-scale genetic databases. And in I'm, you know, particularly excited, you know, would love to see more U.S.-backed genotyping efforts so that American investigators are less dependent on these public-private partnerships with for-profit companies like 23andMe versus these more publicly accessible databases like UK Biobank. So there's that. That's definitely going to be true. So with that, you could do what people already do just with a different population. So I'm, we're going to restrict it to people who are, you know, homogenous with regards to ancestry, but now it's going to be people who right. are, you know, homogenous with regards to a different set of ancestry backgrounds. I think instead of that, what you're increasingly going to see is, you know, multi-ancestry GWAS in which people are combining information across multiple populations in combination with family data. That's a particularly powerful approach because you're leveraging both the randomness you get of kid genotypes dependent on parental genotypes and the greater genetic diversity that you get when you're pulling from larger pool of genetic diversity. There's more difference to analyze there. And then at the same time, you know, the field of population genetics who are specifically oriented around looking at kind of larger scale population differences are, you know, they are already paying attention to the GWAS world. How all of things, those things are going to shake out in terms of the results and in terms of how that shapes the conversation moving forward, I'm much less certain about making prognostications about that. We're going to throw to a break, uh, but we're going to come back uh, sooner than in a year um, <laughs> and uh, uh, talk about what we can gain from genetic research and not just how it can be misused. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up, and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Welcome back to The Weeds. I'm Dylan Matthews. I'm talking here with Catherine Page Harden, who's a psychologist at UT Austin. 
Jerusalem Demsis, my, my co-host, uh, you had a question about sort of some of the benefits of this kind of genetic research. Yeah, certainly. So I think that um, often, and even in your book, I think often a refrain to this sort of line of inquiry is just like, why? Like, why are people interested in this? And I think often that's correctly informed by a history of people being interested in it to further sort of the racist ends that we talked about at the end of the last segment. But, you know, you talk about in your reasoning for why it's important to do this sort of research, the best application is in reducing omitted variable bias. So essentially, you know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, you know, if you're a social scientist attempting to discover the effects of a specific policy intervention, like whether reading fiction to your kid affects their grades in elementary school, um, you would want to control for as many things as possible. And we think about things like controlling for race and controlling for uh, socioeconomic status and controlling for potentially even the types of books that you're reading or whatever it is to make sure you're really isolating the effect of that variable. And one thing that you see as being particularly particularly useful is controlling for their genes in some way or using the polygenic index to control for that kind of genetic variation. Can you give us a sense of how impactful this would be and, and areas that you think this would have been useful to have? Um, I know you have some policy examples in your book. Just to kind of think about this in broad brushstrokes, there's kind of three propositions that underlie this argument. And the first is that knowing about how human development works is useful if we want to intervene to change it. You know, it's just the idea that like any of our interventions and policies, even if they're not empirically based, even if they're not based on a specific study, they are based on a model of how the world works. So not everyone agrees with this, but I'm pretty committed to the proposition that understanding something is useful for trying to change it as a, as a system. The second is, is it possible to study human development well if you ignore the fact that children are genetically different from one another. And by ignore, I mean, you could write something in your the discussion section. My advisor from grad school used to call it the disgusting section, the disgusting section of your research <laughs> paper saying, oh, you know, like these might be confounds. Or are you actually taking genetic differences seriously in your research design? Like when you report a correlation between some aspect of an environment provided by parents and some aspect of how children develop, do you attempt to account for in any way the prospect that children also inherit their genes from their parents? And I, I'll give you a really concrete example. There was recently a special issue of a journal that was released and it was all about wealth inequality in relation to child academic and behavioral outcomes. And literally every single paper was, oh, we looked at the relationship between parental debt and child ADHD. And they're related, they're correlated. Parents who have more debt have children who have more ADHD. We should therefore forgive debt as a solution for like, you know, resolving children ADHD. And you might think that the forgiving debt is a good thing to do for other reasons, but parents who impulsively spend money having children who impulsively do things <laughs> is not necessarily entirely due to the corrosive effects of debt on children outcome. Again, like debt forgiveness might be a good thing to do. That might be good policy reasons for doing it. But selling it as a solution to child ADHD, when you haven't even thought about like why might parental behavior be correlated with child outcomes, just check it. Just check it out. It's an observation that is radical in its simplicity. Simple in the sense that like an every first year undergrad like immediately guess what I'm talking about and radical in the sense that even though people have been pointing out this out for 40 years, a huge part of the social science database is, is littered with this type of, of research. And I think that's problematic because it represents a huge amount of, of, of opportunity costs in terms of identifying what are the features of the environment that are actually most impactful for child development right? Like, I think the environment impacts childhood ADHD. As a mom of an ADHD child, I think we need better treatments for ADHD. I don't think another 40 years of us correlating parental behavior with childhood ADHD and then assuming that all of those are causal, I think it's going to continue to be an unproductive strategy. If that strategy was going to work, I think it would have worked already. But in fact, if we look at most of the things we try in reducing 
teen substance use in improving academic achievement. Some things work, but most things don't, right? Like we spend so much money and time on things that are dead ends. Again, like not all of our policy interventions are based on science. Maybe this is optimistic. I do think that a better scientific understanding of human development has the potential to give us better levers for change. So ultimately, if we're interested in investing in child development, we can't understand children without paying attention to genetic differences between them because they're wrapped up in the environmental differences that they also receive. So yeah, the point that they're wrapped up is is something I wanted to ask about because for so much of this book, you have very lucid explanations of how genetic causes can be mediated through all kinds of social forces. But that makes me wonder what you're controlling for when you control for, for some of these polygenic indices. So to use your example of people with high levels of debt having kids with ADHD, if like one of the, the genetic levers through which sort of people's education level is affected by their genes is their personality as a one-year-old, this is an example you use in the book, is less responsive to, to being read to. And so they aren't read to as much and get a worse education and so make less money and so are more likely in debt. And then you're controlling for that. Are you controlling for their genes or are you controlling for like a poor education? How do you disentangle that and interpret once you've controlled for this? In some ways, this comes back to like, actually, you know, polygenic scores are interesting and valuable in lots of ways. At the end of the day, I think there will never be an end-all cure-all for this problem. We almost always end up having to come back to family designs. Right. Like, so what you've seen, if you just like look at the arc of behavioral genetics, right, it's let's do GWAS with a bunch of conventionally unrelated people. Okay, let's do GWAS and then test if our polygenic score works within families to now what everyone's talking about, which is within family GWAS, right? Like, we should just be doing GWAS with siblings from the beginning or or GWAS contingent on parental genotypes. You know, the best way to control for you know, genetic transmission between parents and children is not a polygenic score. It's to use something like an adoption design or a children of twins design, something where, but those samples are rare and they're weird. They're non-representative in some way. And so pragmatically, we're back in the same place that social scientists always are, which is how can we construct a variety of natural experiments, all of which have different assumptions and weaknesses and limitations? And do they tell me the same answer. So debt and ADHD, you know, is that relationship still there if you're looking at a sample of adoptees? What if you control for both maternal genetics, kid genetics, and then you look at the part of kid of maternal genetics that are associated controlling for kid genetics, which must be tapping something about the environment? What's the mechanism for that? Like, again, a PGS is not you're exactly right. Like it's a it's me- it's a measured using DNA. It's not just tapping genetic processes. So we have to think about how do we integrate that in our other arsenal of research designs to get at this problem. I mean, what you're getting at there <laughs> is like fundamentally the problem of doing like observational social science, right? Like it's really really hard to think about these things. So one argument of, about this topic that you sort of look face-to-face at throughout the book and that, that came up in the profile you in The New Yorker is there's a decent share of people who just think it's it's dangerous to be doing this kind of work even in a non-eugenic mm-hmm. way, that that it's it has such an awful history, that there's a risk of, of giving aid and comfort to, um, to bad actors, even if, if you yourself are not a bad actor. And if I wanted to like steel man that point of view and get you to respond to it and, and sort of present it in, in the least tangentious way I can, um, like one way to look at this project is to try to compare the benefits and the costs of, of attempting a kind of left or egalitarian sort of genetic worldview. And so the costs are, from this point of view, sort of the risk of accelerating eugenic thought, of providing encouragement to to bad actors unintentionally. Uh, And then the benefit, like the main benefit that you you repeat uh, in the book is is improves study design of reducing omitted variable bias. And I think it's reasonable for someone to to read the book and say, like, is that benefit worth the cost? Like, no, we don't know that that's going to be a cost. 
and like you are you are definitely not uh, Charles Murray or, or Charles Benedict Davenport or, or any of these folks that you like have very strong egalitarian commitments. But how do you weigh those? How do you weigh the potential benefits against the costs? And, and sort of are there other benefits that I'm giving short shrift to that might might justify it? What's interesting to me about that risk benefit calculus is it's almost always predicated to go back to the end of your question of like of doing this work you know, as if I personally or me and my colleagues are like cranking the machinery of large-scale genetic <laughs> studies in the world, and we could also just stop doing that, like stop pushing the crank. And I also want to say that, you know, this conversation happens differently when we're talking about medical genetics, right? So, or, and then there's kind of this middle ground of psychiatric genetics where some parts of it are controversial, and but, you know, there is actually a lot of enthusiasm for understanding the genetic etiology of schizophrenia, for instance, or bipolar disorder. The thing is, is you don't get one without the other, right? Like if we look at genes associated with any medical condition, we end up finding genes that are associated with education because education structures disease, you know, in our society and every, every society. If we look at genes for lung cancer, we end up also finding genes that are associated with ADHD and number of sexual partners, right? And that's because the behavioral risks that are associated with one set of things are associated with the behavioral risks associated with lung cancer. And in fact, it's difficult to make sense of the results of like genetics of lung cancer if you're not parsing out what is this is like about this is susceptibility in my lungs versus the behaviors that got me into this exposure in the first place. So I don't think the choice is between doing social and behavioral genetics versus genetics never being associated with social and behavioral traits. I think the choice is between there is this onslaught of genetic information that is happening every day around a number of traits about which people are very excited to study them. And actually, genotypes don't fit into our neat little boxes of like, this is safe to study and this is controversial to study. I think our choices are either have a conversation about how to think about them and how to use them, or for psychology and sociology to continue completely ignoring it. And that's going to somehow make racists less, less racist. Like, I'm not really sure how, like, how social scientists having less satisfactory research designs in ways that really do hurt our opportunities to intervene, like mitigates the danger of misappropriation. I think it just removes us from a conversation about a technology that is exploding. Like to me, when people are like, why do this work? It's like asking me like, why use the internet? You know, like, <laughs> because the internet's not going away. And like the internet hurts people, but it also helps people. Like, let's have a conversation about the use of the internet is, is kind of my, my perspective on it. Jerusalem, I can see, wants yeah. to jump in here. <laughs> just like, just, just jittering on my seat. Um, uh, also someone with ADHD. So I, that's, we have to Um <laughs> So I think I just want to push here a little bit because I think that, you know, I think you're presenting sort of this this binary, which I think is it's correct. Like this research is going to continue happening. It's like not you're not going to get together and create some sort of like law that no one can can study this sort of thing. And, and that would be um, impossible to tailor properly. But there's obviously a difference. And I think because you are making an affirmative case in your book, not just for this research to sort of continue. Um, you didn't write this as a research note for your fellow social scientists. This You're making the affirmative case here. And it's not just that we should be doing this research, but that this should be an argument that we're bringing up uh, specifically from a policy perspective and from a politics perspective as well as trying to reclaim this genetics from eugenesis. And you, you mentioned earlier in our conversation that you wrote this book for a general audience. So clearly there's like a gradient here between like, we're just going to do this research and social scientists will control for something that no one will ever, like, you know, I will never have heard of what a polygenic index is and we'll just keep on going um, versus like, you know, making an affirmative case like you are. So I, I think it's also, you know, what what value do you see in in that specifically? The best way for me to address this is like to think about like how thinking about genetics has played out in my own life and in my conversations with my family who tend towards the more conservative bent, which is... When I think about what makes a structure good, like what, what makes a school good or a public transportation system good, I think about one that's good that 
affirms the inclusion and citizenship and dignity of people regardless of the hand they were dealt, right? Like when I look at my kid's school, I don't want one that treats my kids exactly the same. Like I want one that looks at my son and says, this is the way he struggles and is challenged. It looks at my daughter and says, this is the way she struggles and she challenged and sees that and accommodates that. So I spend my life thinking about how genetics matters for people. And I, I see how that's, this has played out in my own family. And then I see how that field is reflected back in which it's either like necessarily evil and eugenic or like no possibility could come from it. When in fact, for me personally, thinking about the role of luck in my own life has been profoundly influential for me in thinking about how do I respond to that? How do I think of that in relation to what I owe other people? So it's hard for me because as a scientist, I'm always reluctant to say that like a set of scientific results should commit you to a certain moral or political philosophy, right? And, and I just said that early in the hour. But at the same time, I think it's important to articulate a vision for how I see it, if only to broaden the scope of the conversation, which has really proceeded in this, I think, these narrow, very narrow tracks for a really long time. So knowing that we, we shouldn't sort of derive an ought from an is and, and treat any politics as sort of derived from, from this research, a lot of your book is about morality and, and political philosophy and sort of trying to grapple with the role of luck in our lives. And so I'm, I'm curious what doing this research and, and being immersed in these debates has, how it's shaped your thinking and, and what, how it's changed how you think about what people deserve in society and what, what we owe to other people. Yeah, I would say that it's, it's it shifted my emphasis much more away from what away from what people deserve and more towards what we owe each other. Yeah. In that same volume of essays by Thomas Nagel that you, you talked about earlier, there's, you know, he has this whole idea of moral luck, you know, and he's like, if you consider the part, you know, the the realm in, in, of life in which luck does not intervene at all, it, like it's, it shrinks to an extensionless point, like it essentially disappears. And I think sometimes people find the grappling with the role of luck in their life both embodied luck and external luck to be really dislocating, disorienting. I also quote in the book that old E.B. White line, you know, you can't talk of luck to a self-made man. You know, we'd like to think that we like (laughs) earn things and deserve things. Whereas I don't really see it very much in terms of like what I've earned or what I've deserved. You know, that Rawlsian idea of like, none of the presets of justice tilt towards dessert. You know, we're not going to apportion the world according to what people deserve. I think many of our conversations would be better off politically if we were less oriented around how can we parse out the deserving poor from the undeserving poor or the deserving people from the undeserving people and thought more about if this was my kid, would this be the structure I'd want for them? Yeah, I mean, the part of the luck argument that I found the most interesting is just kind of like the luck of being born in the right time or place for the specific variants you have to be valued by society. And I mean, you know, podcasting talent, if, if me and Dylan have any, <laughs> would not have been particularly important to someone living in the 1700s. Um, you know, but, you know, it's helpful right now and it's valuable right now. And um, I think it's it's interesting. I know you said a research in your in your book about how in less egalitarian societies, um, you know, the effect of genetic variants on outcomes becomes more limited because we're reducing opportunities for people. And you talk specifically about how when there were fewer uh, educational opportunities for women in Western countries, it mattered less that you had the genetic variant or even the life or whatever, edu- even environmental variants that would make uh, or, or environmental benefits that would make you better at completing school because you were legally prohibited from going to law school or going to um, whatever graduate program. And so, you know, this sort of luck here, um, I think it's interesting because it feels like most people's response is like, okay, well, like, how do I change my genetics to make sure they fit the current context? Like, how do I change it so that like I'm attractive by today's standards or I am whatever intelligent by today's standards or whatever it is? But, you know, I think the response that you have in your book that I'd love for you to expand on is sort of how do we change society to be to more equitably value different life outcomes? Even, you know, I think over the last year, we've thought a lot about, you know, quote, unskilled labor that has literally oh, yeah. kept the economy afloat versus the skilled labor of, you know, all of us sitting, you know, people sitting in there 
apartments and, and day trading? Like what is actually societally valuable? And yeah. so I think that those two different approaches, like how, I mean, A, do you see there as being kind of um, a likelihood of how we push people towards the second one or or, or any of your, your thoughts um, about how you got to this place? I mean, you, you picked up on two, I think, really important themes right there that are obviously related, which is that one, you know, we can talk about genetic lack or environmental lack, but it's it's always your body in a certain place in a certain time, a certain history. You know, if you think about like what was, what were the uh, genetically influenced markers of skill for textile weavers before the industrial revolution, right? Versus afterwards, that it's not as if the genes to manual dexterity necessary or genes to eyesight relationship changed. It was, what is the relationship to these craft skills to economic outcomes? Like that's the part that shifted. And the other thing that you're picking up there is that that language of skilled versus unskilled, which I loathe, actually. I think it, deval- <laughs> I think it fetishizes a certain class of human skills and devalues um, almost all others. You know, before I worked on science, I worked as a waitress and those were the hardest jobs that I ever had in my life. That kind of like management of attention and management of your emotions and service of other people, I find incredibly skillful and much more difficult than like sitting in a a lab, like pipetting things all day, (laughs) actually. So it's kind of a two-pronged argument. So on the one hand, I want to think about like, given that you live in this place and this time, the fact that you happen to, to develop this particular constellations of skills that are valued, maybe overvalued now, that is not, I want to push people to think more about the role of chance, even genetic chance in that. And then two, given that, is that really the kind of world we want to live in? And it's not just a genetic argument. I mean, there have been all sorts of, of sides, people thinking about the ways in which other skills that we call essential but don't value as essential have been devalued in our economy. I think many of the, much of the fervor and much of the agita around linking our biology to the development of certain sort of skills would be drained out of the conversation if those skills were more equally valued economically and in our sort of hierarchies of power and prestige. So the last thing I wanted to ask you about, uh, since we've taken a lot of your time and I really appreciate it, the end of the book in some of your sort of philosophical arguments, for me as a philosophy nerd, was was a joy in that it, it brought me back to undergrad when I was obsessed with this sort of school of thought called luck egalitarianism uh, that you seem to have, have come across in arguing about this. And the basic idea with luck egalitarianism, building on, on some of Rawls's arguments, was that anything deriving from luck is is not earned, is not deserved, but also more than that should be like eliminated, that a just society, a fair society people's positions don't depend on luck or chance at all is interesting to me because I, I think I get some senses of how you feel about that idea in the book. Um, and you you repeatedly cite an essay by Elizabeth Anderson, those are arguing against that idea and arguing that that equality is actually about sort of social equality and treating each other with, with equal dignity. But I'm curious where you land on that. Like, do should we be trying to eliminate luck or just sort of live with it and build a just society knowing that luck is going to play a part? You know, you're the first person that's commented on the fact that the most frequent philosophers I cite in the book are ones who argue with each other constantly. So (laughs) props to you for that. So I find the luck egalitarianism position to be really useful in terms of pushing against our intuitions of what we deserve, quote unquote, deserve in life. And I find Elizabeth Anderson's critique of luck egalitarianism to be really, really useful in terms of thinking about what is the relationship between pity versus valuing someone's equal dignity and what is it that we should be trying to equalize. So one thing that I'm one thing that I talk about in the book is that, you know, when we're thinking about like, okay, genetic differences between people matter. We don't have to think of them as destiny. We can think about trying to, you know, narrow inequalities of outcome between people. We don't have to treat that as a one-size-fits-all solution. So 
if I had to think of kind of a marriage of the luck egalitarian and Elizabeth Anderson physician, although Anderson might be appalled <laughs> uh, <laughs> if she ever listens to this, that the suggestion is thinking about not making the experiences of participating in society as an equal, of feeling like you are living a life that reflects your human dignity. That should not depend on luck, regardless of the form of luck. Example that I come back to in my book, which is a piece of legislation that I just continually find fascinating and continually find fascinating that it was signed by George H.W. Bush is the Americans right. with Disabilities Act, right? ADA says, I don't care why you are differently abled. Why are you in a wheelchair? It could be because you were in a car accident. It could be because of a congenital disorder. Like, I don't care. You are entitled to participate in this public space and we're going to structure it so that you can participate, right? And that seems to be both a luck egalitarian idea, which is like something has happened to you and like we're not going to say that you deserve to be excluded on the basis of this bad luck, whatever it is, but it's not a policy of pity. Um, It's equalizing people's ability to participate in a way that reflects their inherent human dignity. Though that's how those ideas are connected in my mind. Well, now that we've we've pandered to our audience with some deep uh, political <laughs> philosophy, um, I think it's probably probably time to wrap up. But thank you so much for being here, uh, Paige Harden, to Jerusalem Demsis, my co-host. Our producer is Sophie Lalonde. Libby Nelson is the editor of The Weeds. Amber Hall is our deputy editorial director for Talk Podcasts at Vox. Liz Nelson is the VP of Audio. I'm your host, Dylan Matthews, and we will see you back here on Tuesday. <laughs>